All right, well, good morning, church. So we're going to be reading chapter 34 and the first 15 verses of chapter 35. It still seems like a lot, but it's less than what we've been going over the last couple of weeks. The thing about this chapter specifically, and about the Word of God, and the beauty of the Bible, actually, is that it does not hide the ugly spots. Right? And this chapter is an ugly spot. Right? This is one of the premier ugly spots in the Bible. It's really a shameful incident in the history of Israel. And it's unfortunately something that they will continue to, in many different ways, repeat throughout the history of Israel. But it's a very shameful incident in the history of Israel. However, if there is any encouragement that comes from this chapter, from this from this event that we'll reading about this morning, it's this, which is that it is proof positive that the Bible is the Word of God, right? Because, and we've discussed this before, like back when Genesis chapter nine, for example, when we were talking about Noah's drunkenness and things like that. Uh, the Bible does not hide the warts and the ugliness and the sins of godly men, right? The Bible does not excuse their sins either. I mean, they're kept here in God's word as a warning to us so that we can learn from them, that we can grow from them, that we know how not to act, how not to be, right? What not to do. But if the Bible was just written by men, right? If it was not divinely authored, which it is, but if it was not, they don't generally write about these things themselves, right? They don't want these shameful incidents to put them in poor light, things that would embarrass them or humiliate them, things like that. They're going to skip over these points. If, if it was just men writing this, they wouldn't put this in necessarily. But God, since the word is divinely authored, since the Bible is spirit-breathed, God just puts in the entire truth and nothing but the truth, right? Warts and all. And this chapter is proof of that. It's a tough chapter, right? The, the rape and the abduction of Dinah, the treachery of Jacob's sons. There's a professor, he was the professor of Old Testament theology at the Evangelical Lutheran Theological Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. His name was H.C. Leopold. And, uh, and H.C. stands for Herbert Carl, by the way, not that you needed to know that. But he had a quote concerning this chapter. And this is what he said. He said, we may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. As a rule, the Sunday school scholars do not even hear of this event in the life of Jacob. What she's just saying is that they don't teach this in Sunday school. Right? Men who followed the mechanical procedure in the work of preaching, which consisted in treating in strictly consecutive order the chapters of a biblical book that they had selected for such treatment, a lot of words just to say people who teach through the Bible book by book, verse by verse, you know, of necessity had to use this chapter. But as a whole, it is, I mean, as a whole, it's an invaluable sidelight on the lives of the patriarchs. It is rightly evaluated by the more mature mind and could be treated to advantage before a men's Bible class. In other words, it might be a good chapter to teach in a men's Bible study or a men's get together. But we cannot venture to offer homiletical suggestions for its treatment. What Herbert is saying there in plain English would be, it would be a ridiculous undertaking or a risky endeavor for anyone to prepare a sermon from this chapter. 
no one with proper discernment would even dare. Really? That's so encouraging. Well, you ready? Let's go. Because, because I dared. Let's do it. Starting in chapter 34. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take your daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for a great Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. And then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young men did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate in his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Verse 25. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. So they took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me for making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Go, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you. And when you fled from your brother Esau, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, 
Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that uh, you will speak to us through these verses in this chapter and help us come to terms with the truth of the word that you, you want to use to shape and mold our lives. We pray, Lord, that you, your word, that your spirit to speak it to us, that your words be spoken. We thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Incidents like this don't happen generally just out of the blue. Usually there's something that leads up to it, something, a seed that was planted earlier, something that, that happened earlier. Usually the problems start beforehand, and this is just the effects of a bad decision or, or things like that. The problem for what we have here in Genesis chapter 34 actually started back in Genesis chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 13, where God told Jacob at that time, he told him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now, the land of Jacob's kindred is Hebron or Mamre, where Isaac, his father, lived. So when we fast forward to the end of chapter 33, which we went over last week, where we see Jacob first building a house in Succoth, and then making booths for his livestock, and settling down outside the city of Shechem where he purchases himself some land. This wasn't a rest stop. Jacob wasn't just pulling over to go use the restroom right, on the long trip. Jacob stopped here. He purchased land, he built a house, he built booths for his animals. They probably stayed in this area for about 10 years. Matter of fact, when we pick up the story right now, it's probably been somewhere around 10 years before when he arrived. His oldest sons, therefore, are in their mid-20s, and Dinah is probably a teenager. She's probably 15. That's not a stretch to think about her age at this time. And because I know you don't have a map in front of you, I'll just say this. Shechem is not Hebron. Okay? They're roughly 50 miles away or possibly around three days, three to four days away from Hebron. They seem really close where God told them to go back to. 
But as far as these events are concerned about what happens here today, they are far, far, far away. Which begs the question, why stop when you're so close? Right? What was Jacob afraid of? Was it fear? Was Jacob afraid to go home? Was it a physical issue? I mean, we can come up with all kinds of things. Remember, Jacob just wrestled with God, and God put his, you know, put his hip out of socket and lay, basically hobbled him for life. He doesn't move as fast as he used to now. Maybe, you know, maybe he's still recovering from that, right? You know, we can come up with all that different excuses of why he got into, like he stepped a foot into the land of Canaan and said, I'm just going to stop right here for now. Right? So, I mean, so the question is, why do we stop part way? I want you to think about it. I mean, yes, Jacob was in the land of Canaan, which was good. And yes, Jacob built an altar to God, right, which was good. He declared that it was, you know, his God. It wasn't just now the God of his fathers. It wasn't just the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac. It was now his God. Right? He has a, a new relationship with the Lord. That's good. But what would have been better? Complete obedience. That's what would have been better. Right? Might have saved himself some headaches. See, God wants obedience first, then sacrifice. It tells us in 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. That verse in 1 Samuel comes after King Saul was told to go out and wipe out the Amalekites. Right? Samuel gave the order from God to Saul, go kill all the Amalekites. And he didn't. He, you know, 98.5% of them, or whatever it was. He wiped out almost all the Amalekites, but he let some of the Amalekites live. So he partially obeyed the Lord's command. But here's the truth about partial obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. I didn't want to hear that. But, but partial obedience is disobedience because you haven't obeyed. You partly obeyed, but you haven't obeyed, so therefore you're disobeying. It's rebellion against God's word. I, I'm, I'm going to do this part way. I'm not going to do it all the way. Well, because of Saul's partial obedience, which is being referred to in 1 Samuel there in chapter 15, guess what? Saul lost his kingdom. And eventually Saul lost his life. Because of Jacob's partial disobedience, of stopping here, right near the city of Shechem, in this area of, of Canaan, there will be consequences as well. Right? Jacob and his family will suffer in this wasted, disobedient period of time. And we see the consequences right at the start of the chapter. Right? When Dinah goes out to mingle with the women of the land. Now, oh, there's so, so much wrong with everything that's going on here. But you would have thought that Dinah would have known that the Canaanites, right, all the, the cities in the area here, all the people, the, 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 the Hivites and, you know, Shechem and, and his family, everyone, this whole pagan society, which they're camped in, which they bought land in now, 
And she, you, you would have thought that she would have known that they regarded unmarried women in the land as legitimate prey. You would have thought she would have known that. You would have thought someone would have taught her that. In other words, you would have thought she would have known better not to go out alone. You know, this does answer one question, just on a side note. This isn't related, really. But, you know, when they give genealogies, they usually only list the men. And when they gave the genealogy of all the sons of uh, Jacob, they listed, you know, we, we got about the birth of Dinah. And the only reason they really listed Dinah is because of what happens here later. Right? So you're introduced to Dinah here so that when we get to this chapter, you know that you know, who this is and, and everything like that. And, we're, and we, we say, well, it's possible that he had more daughters. Right? It's possible he had more daughters. I think this is proof positive that he didn't. Because had he had more daughters, I'm not sure Dinah would have gone out alone. Right? They, they probably would have held her back. It's possible. I mean, I don't know. But if she had had sisters, they, made a, they either would have gone with her or they would have stopped her from going out. But what we see here, as far as the Canaanites and, and everyone in the land here, what we see here, what we see here illustrates this, which is that the, the low standard of morals that are prevalent amongst the Canaanites, that's what we see, right? Any unattended female could be raped, and in the aftermath of, aftermath of that, neither father nor son right, would have to apologize for the vile act that, that had been committed. There, there was no apology. There's no apologies here in the chapter. They never apologize anything for that they did to Dinah. Their attitude is, this is the way it is, accept it, let us let her be my son's wife. Right? Instead of dwelling on what's happened, let's just make a pact together, have a little bit of a covenant, you can intermarry with us, we'll intermarry with you, it'll be great. This is how we do things. Welcome to the land. Right? So that's what we see. Now this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, honestly, I mean, as, as you, I mean, you might read this chapter and just be really troubled, but you really shouldn't be too surprised because we, wouldn't, we should not be surprised when the morals and the ethics of unbelievers are different than ours, right? When there's a stark black and white difference between the two, and when they feel justified in their actions, and they feel no need to apologize, right? They feel nothing wrong with what they did, and it was completely acceptable. It shouldn't surprise us because look at the world we live in today. It's exactly how they are. Right? It's exactly how they are. The world plays by a different rule book. A rule book that says everything goes, right? everything is acceptable. Well, almost everything. Right? Everything except a biblical Christian worldview, that is. That's not acceptable. Right? You guys are domestic terrorists. I mean, they're actually trying to pass a law right now here in Washington State that will try to define what is hate speech. It'll be punishable by jail time. You can be arrested. And basically what they're trying to say is anybody who speaks against things such as LBGTQ, anybody who speaks against same-sex marriage, anybody who speaks against right, all this stuff that's going on, child mutilation with transsexual, everything that's, that's happening. If you speak against this, well, that's going to be considered hate speech. Matter of fact, if you have a biblical worldview and you stick to God's word and, and you say anything, I mean, it's not happening so much in this country right now, but you know, in Canada, pastors have been arrested for doing this. And 
I don't remember where it was now exactly, but it was just in the news this last week where uh, uh, it was at the college and the kid went in and he spoke against the fact that, that uh, uh, transsexual men, right, were being allowed in women's locker rooms. He said, this isn't, this isn't fair. This isn't right. We shouldn't allow people who are biologically male to be in a women's locker room. And they brought the cops out and arrested him, took him, off, took him off campus. And he was a student at the campus. And he was speaking about it wasn't correct. Now, they claimed they arrested him for some weirdly strange whatever reason they could come up with because they couldn't actually arrest him for saying that. But they came up with another reason to arrest him. But this is what they're trying to do. So we sh- this should not surprise us when, right, when these things happen because the, the, the world is morally indifferent. Right? And everything is acceptable except a biblical Christian worldview. That's not acceptable. Now Shechem here, after he assaults Dinah, he tries to comfort her. Right? He speaks tenderly to her, it says. It says that his soul was drawn to Dinah. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, not that they want to, but maybe, maybe he really did somehow fall in love with her. Right? But, so, but the point is, it's like he assaulted her. He's holding her hostage in his house. He didn't let her go home. When he tells his father, go get her for my wife, he's not telling his father to go bring her back. She hasn't left yet. He doesn't, he's not letting her go. Right? So he's holding her hostage. And when he tells her father that, go get this girl for my wife, what that means is, is, that, is that he wants his dad to go purchase Dinah for him. Right? So, hey, listen, I've raped her, I've assaulted her dad, but I really love her. So go to her father and uh, arrange a marriage. Find out the price. And this was probably a normal cultural thing, which is hard for us to wrap our heads around. We didn't live at this time. It's difficult, right? It's a normal cultural thing for this type of thing to happen. Attack, assault, rape an unmarried young single woman, and then afterwards send your father to her father, right, and arrange the marriage and buy him off. That would probably be a normal thing. The problem was... That's not how Israel did things, right? And yes, we can speak to it that way because that's how the sons speak to it when they come back. They said that this had been an outrageous thing done in Israel. They already knew, they kind of already suspected that there was something greater about what was God was doing with Jacob and his sons. Now Jacob hears about it. He hears, but he says that his sons are out in the field, so... He wanted them to come back in. So he had heard that, his, that uh, Shechem had uh, defiled his daughter, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so he held his peace until they came. And, we, and hey, I, I'm 100% we're not running off half-cocked or whatever, right? Gather your thoughts, figure out what's going on. Don't just immediately erupt, grab the shotgun and run out the door. You know, whatever Jacob's response would have been, I don't know said he held his peace. And so I don't think at first that this is a bad response. Okay, I'm going to wait till my sons come in. But yet when his sons come in, Jacob's silent. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't lead them. He doesn't give them any fatherly wisdom about how to approach this. Matter of fact, it would seem like he's just quiet about the whole thing. And this is a problem, Right? Because the problem was Jacob was to lead his sons. And when godly men don't speak up, 
right? When the church is quiet about the atrocities that are surrounding us in the culture that we live in today, in the world that we are today, such as abortion, such as transgenderism, such as child mutilation, right? Just to mention a few. When, when the Christians just keep silent and they don't speak up, they just swallow their opinions and thoughts and they sit on them. They put them in the back pocket and just sit down and hope that, you know, they don't ever have to pull these thoughts out. They don't want people to know what they actually think about things, right? Because they're too afraid to rock the boat or stand for the truth of God's word. Well, in that way, you're then complicit of the crime because you're not saying anything about it. You're not doing anything about it. Even within your own family, you refuse to stand up and say anything. Jacob didn't say anything when his sons came in. It said that he kept his peace. He wanted to wait till his sons came in, but when his sons came in, it doesn't, we don't get the impression Jacob said a word. When the sons came in, of course, they were indignant and they were angry. They were disturbed. It says that they knew what had happened. They had heard already before they arrived. So when they arrived, they were angry. They knew this was wrong in the, the eyes of God. They said it was an outrageous thing and such a thing must not be done. They, they had morals. They had ethics, right? This is a good thing. This shows that they were raised in the ways of God. Jacob had done a good thing with his sons. He had raised them in the ways of God. They knew this was wrong, right? They were angry. The Hivites were probably expecting a different response. Because they just assumed that, they probably just assumed that Jacob and his sons were pretty much like everyone else in the area. So this wasn't going to be too much of a difficult thing. So they were probably expecting, a, you know, a, a different response. Like, you know, hey, the Hivites were probably like, hey, we, we, we haven't done anything wrong. Shechem didn't do anything wrong. This wasn't a reprehensible act. What are you, what, wrong? Are you crazy? Right? Yet Jacob's sons, of course, they have ethics. And they were not, I mean, they weren't devoid of higher values. They knew that this was wrong. The error of Jacob's sons was not in what they felt. They weren't wrong in how they felt. They were, it was wrong, and they are correct. It was wrong. The error is in how they acted. But one again has to ask, where the heck is Jacob? Where's Jacob? He's supposed to be leading his sons here, and yet he seems absent. Listen, if, if, if we the church, if Christians, we don't stand up for what is right and true, who's going to stand up for it? Where is Jacob? He seems absent. So his sons take up the bargaining with Shechem. Not Jacob, his sons. All right? See, when God appointed heads, fathers, for example, in this, here, don't take the appropriate leadership, it creates a void. And then that void is often filled sinfully. And that's what we see here with the sons of Jacob. It says that they were deceitful, that they, that they agreed to the terms deceitfully, that they, they approached the, the, right, Shechem and his father deceitfully. Our, they're carnal. They were approaching things carnally instead of through faith now, right? And when our carnal self comes forth, it, it blurs our spiritual vision. When we're, right, we understand this, correct? When you're angry, and that anger is so great, it blurs your, your spiritual vision. You're not seeing things through God's word anymore. You're not even looking to God's word for advice on this. You have one thought and one thought only. That's whatever you th- your plan was. In their case, it's to murder every man in this town. Right? See, th- they wanted revenge for their sister. They were going to answer this through their flesh. 
Jacob had taught them the ways of the Lord, but they had also learned from Jacob's actions. And Jacob, you know, hadn't had some of the greatest actions. He may have said some, a lot of great things, but he hadn't necessarily acted in a lot of great ways. He wasn't a perfect example, no one is. But they also learned from the culture around them, as we'll see here later. They were also influenced by the culture in which they lived. Right? But as parents, here's one thing we just have to remember really quick, is that if your children see you compromise, then they don't look upon compromise as a bad thing. They think it as a normal thing. We shouldn't be compromising our faith. We should be standing firm in that. That's what our children should be seeing. Us standing firm on the truth of God's word. So they deceitfully agree to a marriage. They say, listen, if the, we can't do this normally, but if all the men of Shechem, if all you people, would just go out and get circumcised, then we can do it. Then we can agree to your terms. But you all have to go get, you know, y'all, you all have to go get circumcised. And of course, Shechem and his father and all the men, they're like, hey, perfect, right? This is going to be great for us because we're going to get a lot of your stuff. You're going to get a lot of our stuff. We're going to benefit from this. We're all for it. Obviously, circumcision was something they kind of understood. Even though none of them were circumcised, the idea of circumcision was probably something that they understood. So they went out and they did that. Right? They all went and got circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It's really a a holy thing. And the sons of Jacob were prostituting it for their purposes. Justified because they, they felt justified. They probably thought God was backing them on this. God's on our side. Because of course their sister had been, as they put later, been prostituted. So all the men of Shechem are sore and recovering from circumcision. Simeon and Levi, Levi, right? The, the priestly tribe, Simeon and Levi, they come in and they kill all the men with their swords. They just murder every single one of them. And then they take Dinah. And if that wasn't enough, and then they go take the flocks and they take the herds and they take the donkeys and they take all their wealth and they take their children and they take their wives. They just take everything. They plunder the entire city, right? The sons of Jacob plundered the entire city. It was a murderous massacre. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 tells us this. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Yes, Dana had been defiled. But they now had defiled themselves in their response to it. And then at the end there of the chapter of 34, it's as if Jacob just shows back up now. He now has something to say after it's all done. It's possible, you know, not trying to give Jacob a break here, but it's possible that he didn't, wasn't aware of what they were going to do. They didn't inform him of their plans. And then he found out afterward, holy cow, right? what have you done? And he's upset. Well, he should be upset. He should be upset for many reasons. But the only reason that he brings up about why he's upset is because now you've brought troubles on me, he says. Right? 
You've made me stink. That's what it says at the end of the chapter. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. And that word in this Hebrew for stink is, it's just smelly and odious, just exactly what you would think. But it also means to be, to be evil, of an evil nature. So he says, you've made me evil. You've made us evil. Our family is now looked upon as having an evil nature in front of everybody. Right? It seems almost as if he wasn't so upset by the murders they just committed as he was upset by the dangerous position that his sons had now put him in. Is he upset about Dinah and what happened to her? I assume he is, but he really seems more upset here. At least the response that we get is strictly for one reason, and that's, listen to what you've done here. You've put us in a precarious spot. You've now made us stink to all the inhabitants. They think we're evil, and we are evil, right? If they attack us because of this, we're going to be destroyed because we're outnumbered. This is a bad thing. So Jacob was upset by what they'd done. But I want to tell you that, that if you think the sons have gotten away anything, because their response, of course, to their father is just that, well, would it have been better if we just let our sister be a prostitute? Jacob doesn't really have an answer for that, because the answer is no, it wouldn't have been better. But that's their justification, right, for, for their actions, for what they did. And they really, at this point, they don't sound too much different than the people in the land, right? They're not behaving any differently than they are. So Jacob was upset, but I'm going to tell you that he never forgot what happened. Because if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 49, when da- Jacob's on his deathbed and he gathers all of his sons to him, and he gives them his final blessing. This is what he tells Simeon and Levi. He tells them this. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and for their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So when it came time for them to receive the inheritance from their father, they did not get the inheritance they were thinking of. Jacob never forgot what their sons did. What his sons did. So you're probably thinking, you look at a chapter like this, what we just read in chapter 34, and even how it ends, it wraps up what God does with them here in chapter 35, which we'll talk about in just a second. You probably think, what the heck? How is this applicable to my life? What can I learn from this? Because I pray to God, you never have to go through anything like this. I hope this never, we never have to face this situation. I mean, obviously, right off the top of our head, we can, we, the main thing we learn from a chapter from like this is what we all know, right? It's, it's plain as day what not to do. Don't go off and murder people, right? That's the obvious thing. But that's not really what we should be focusing on. I don't have to explain that one. I think you most, most of you probably know that. But I will say this. Our emotions tend to lead us into situations like this when we're offended and we're hurt right mentally physically otherwise we tend to react out of the hurt out of the anger i know that if something like this happened to my daughter i would probably respond like the sons of jacob right i don't think there's a guy here who would think that they would all respond in a different way if we're being honest right we start thinking then at that point we start thinking like dirty harry or john wick or you know, Liam Neeson in the Taken movies. I have a very particular set of skills, right? 
I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. I've watched all those movies, right? So, so we, we kind of respond like that. That's how we kind of think about if this happened to our daughter, this is how we would respond. We, we can easily forgive almost the sons of Jacob's for what they did because of the atrocity done to their sister. But honestly, that's the wrong response. The Bible tells us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we are to be righteous. We are to be holy as he is holy. So our response to things like this can't be in anger, it can't be in violence, it can't be that way. So how should we then behave when, when wronged? Right? When we're hurt or when we're assaulted or when we're defiled? How, should we respond in like manner? As the sons of Jacob did? You hurt me so I hurt you? I'm going to tell you that that's how the world wants you to respond. Worldly speaking, we could be justified in that sense if we responded in that same way. Because that's how the world looks at things. I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 18 is when God passed down, when he gave the commandment that he, they needed to go in and, and devote to, to complete destruction the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That hadn't been passed down yet. But we can look at that in Deuteronomy and we can say, well, you know, Shechem was a Hivite, so two plus two equals four. So we can, we can justify Jacob's sons going in and wiping out all these men because later God gives an order to do that. No? No? This is what I think. I say that any attempts to defend the actions of Jacob's sons here or make light of the ugliness of man's nature or to disregard the rape of Dinah or whatever uh, are just an attempt by us to sidestep the brutal, stark, and upsetting imagery of this chapter. We kind of just want to step around it and go on to the next. Don't, we don't need to address it too much. And the reason we don't want to do that is because we can't we can't. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around this and trying to understand it. One, it's. I mean, it's something that happened thousands of years ago in a culture that we don't comprehend, which I completely understand. But I think the real reason that we have problems with chapters like this is because that we are unwilling to face the dark truth of the matter, which is that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is evil, continually. Right. No one is righteous, the Bible tells us, not one person. And when it says that, that means us. Right? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, as it says in Jeremiah. And the reason I think that sometimes we have trouble with going through chapters like this is that exact reason. The truth is that most of us don't want to face because it has to do with the depravity of our own hearts. Because we know if we were in this exact situation... And we didn't have Jesus, we would probably respond exactly the same way. But we don't want to think that of ourselves. We don't. I don't. <laughs> you know, I don't want to think of that. We don't want to think about ourselves. It makes us, we don't want to look at a scene like this and, and then see our own reflection looking back at us. We it's a scary thought that we're capable of things like this. 
What does this show us? Among anything and almost everything else, what does this show us? It shows us that when we compromise our spiritual walk, right? By, by allowing our faith to, to be weakened by false gods and worldly values instead of God's word, instead of staying in the strengthened by God's word. When our morals and our ethics are diluted by the lies of the culture around us, then, then we find out that we're no better than they are. No, we're no better than they are. Why would they take us seriously? I mean, how can we point them to Christ when our lives don't speak of Christ in any way? If we become so much like them. Had Jacob's sons become so much like the culture around them? Yes, because what does Jacob tell them to do? See, God immediately comes to Jacob after this happened. He says, listen, return to Bethel where you first met me. Come on. I need to deal with you and your sons. And Jacob tells, his, tells everyone, not just his sons, but everyone who's with him. Remember, he has a large group of people. What's he tell them to do? Right there at the beginning of chapter 35, what does he tell them to do? He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. This means that they had been immersed within the culture that was around them because they had false gods. We know Rebecca stole her father's false gods, but other people in the group, possibly even his sons, had false gods. They were worshiping false gods as long as trying to follow the one true living God. You can't do that. It's a compromise. It's a compromise that weakens your spiritual state. It's a compromise that weakens your walk. They were compromised people. And when it came to it, when something, when this event happened and this tragedy happened with their sister Dinah, they, they didn't have a godly response to it. Because that's not how everyone else did things. That's not what they thought of at that point. Right? So in that sense, Israel, which is to be a light unto the nations, which God was growing, right? To be his people, lost their testimony. When we prostitute the word of God for our fleshly desires or for our revenge or whatever, we're no longer salt and light. We stink. And that's what Jacob said. Jacob wasn't wrong in what he said. I mean, yes, you, you, we kind of wish, oh, Jacob, why didn't you say something about your daughter? Why didn't you say something about the atrocities they committed? Why didn't you talk about all this other stuff? Why are you only saying this? But what he said is true. It's, it's not wrong. You've made us stink. Well, this is what happens when we do this. We stink. And what does that show us? It shows us that we need Jesus. Because there's only one person who can change that for us. And that's Jesus Christ. Right? He's the only one who can take our stinky, selfish, fleshly lives and turn them into a testimony of his grace and his mercy. Jesus is the only one who can do that. The only one. But what does it take from us? It takes us surrendering our lives fully to him. Not halfway. He calls us to 100% obedience. Give me your life. Surrender it all. 
It says at the very end of the verses we read in chapter 35 and verse 14, it says that Jacob poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on the altar that he made. Guess what? That's what God wants with your life. He wants you to pour out your life as a drink offering to him. And he wants all of it. He doesn't want any of this halfway stuff. Halfway causes problems. Partially obedient is completely disobedient as far as he's concerned. Be obedient. Be completely obedient. So, Right? Put away the false idols. Put away the false idols. Repent. That's what it is. That's repentance. When Jacob is telling them to put away the false idols. Right? To cleanse themselves. Purify themselves. Put on fresh garments. He's saying, hey, get yourself clean before God. How do you do that? Repent. It's repentance. Right? Repent. So take your false idols. Go bury them in the backyard if you need to. Right? Just like he did. Take them and bury them so they're no longer... Have that influence over you. Whatever you need to do to him, and then come to the Lord. Right? Return to the Lord. That's what Jacob does. He returns to Bethel. God says, come back to Bethel where we first met. Where you realized I was with you. Where you came in dragging your feet and you left being lifted up. Come back when I, where I first appeared to you. Remember my promises. Remember my word. God says to you the same thing. Come on, no more of this halfway stuff. Go all the way. Remember the promises I gave you. Remember my word. Change your garments. Purify yourselves. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You were dead, but you're now alive. You were to be in the world, but not of the world. We should not be behaving as they behave. We should be set apart unto the Lord. Live like it. So when these things happen to us, if, if you know, Something like this where, you know, we're attacked or whatever it is. Because, because culturally speaking, it's, if it's not here yet, it's coming. Well, it's real simple. This is what the Bible tells us how we should respond. Like I said, obviously it's not murder. But it's this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Be merciful, it says, even as your father is merciful, as it says in Luke chapter 6. Romans 12, 17 to 19 says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's what Jacob's son did. They played back evil for evil. But God said, don't do that. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Can you be at peace with all men? Never take your own revenge, beloved, for, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Can we leave it in the hands of God? Can we trust and know that nobody's getting away with anything, no matter what it looks like? That in the end, God's going to take care of it. And he says, just love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In other words, in your relationship, do all that you can to stand. Stand firm. Ephesians 6.13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand, Right? Stand firm. I'm going to read that verse in the message. Yes, I know it's the message. You'll live. Right? But I'm going to read that verse in the message. It says this. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so that you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no weekend war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. It's a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. 
take all the help you can get. Every weapon God has issued. So that when it's all over, but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. Do you hear that? Indispensable weapon. And in the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard, pray long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits lifted up so that no one falls behind or drops out. That's Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 18. So what do we do when events like this happen to us? We trust in the Lord. We trust in the Lord. Amen.